It is said that money is not a very complicated thing. It's a tool, and there's really only three things you can do with that tool. What do you think the three things would be that you can do with money? You can give it away, or you can spend it, or you can save it. And beyond that, um, what doesn't fall in those three general categories, I don't know what it would be. You can give it, you can spend it, or you can save it. And I think in all of those areas, you could be a good steward. You could be a good steward by deciding to give money that you have. You could be a good steward by deciding to spend money that you have for certain things, and I think you can be a good steward by trying to save. So between tonight and tomorrow night, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at giving, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at spending, or particularly debt, and then we'll wrap up by spending some time uh, thinking about saving, how you might save and what might be appropriate to save for. Last night we ended up by talking about the nature of God, how God is a person who loves, and it says that because he loves, he is giving in his nature. He is generous. People tend to be selfish in their nature until they are trained to be otherwise. Uh, at least most people are selfish by nature, but God is a giving God. There are different ways that we could decide that we are going to handle our giving. We have some broad categories here we like to use. One of those uh, would be we could decide that all giving is going to be done on a per capita basis. Per capita simply means per head. So whenever we have a need um, for which finances are needed, we're simply going to divide that out. I don't know how many members you have at your church, but Let's imagine that there were 100 members at Myerstown Mennonite Church. And Myerstown Mennonite Church decided to address some need. Maybe it was a mission need for foreign missions. Maybe it was uh, a need within the congregation. Some money was needed to help a family or help a person. And they would say, well, this comes out rather conveniently. We have exactly 100 members in our congregation we need $1,000, so we can all do simple math. $1,000 divided by 100 members, every person here owes $10. So every person here, if they would give $10, our need would be met. And then, simple, isn't it? Uh, is that the way that we do our giving? We figure out what the need's going to cost, and we divide it out by the person, and then everyone, regardless of their occupation, the person who makes minimum wage and the person who makes $200,000 a year, they all give the exact same amount. That's not the way we do most of our giving, but it is a way that some giving is done. And it's, it's actually an appropriate way for some giving to be done, everyone sharing the same. If you go into the Old Testament, there is an example of per capita giving. 
If you've never noticed this little passage before, it's worth looking up this verse and thinking about the situation that's being described. Jewish people had to pay what was called, what we would call temple tax. Every year, when a Jewish male, uh, a young man who was of age and then on up until they died, they were supposed to go to the temple at least one time a year, and sometimes two, but at least one time of the year, they were supposed to show up at the temple no matter where they lived. And when they came to the temple, they were to bring money because they were to pay something for the upkeep of the temple. This was a per head gift. It says exactly what it was. It was to be a half shekel of pure silver. And it specifically says that the rich were not to give more and the poor were not allowed to give less. Every person was required, every male, a half shekel of silver, and it didn't matter whether you made minimum wage or a million dollars a year, the poor person paid half a shekel, and the rich person paid, contributed would be the better word, contributed the exact same amount. Why would God structure it that for the upkeep of his building, every person paid the same? The rich person paid an amount which was almost nothing to them. The poor person paid an amount that they probably had to save up for, and it was a sacrifice. And God throwing in, the rich shall not pay more. You come with two half shekels, we're going to hand one back. No, you're not even allowed to give more. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. Um, He's, he's been off work, um, doesn't have a whole lot of resources. Where is your half shekel? The poor shall not give less, the rich shall not give more. Um, one explanation would be that what were they doing? They were coming before God. And when you come before God, there is no difference between the rich and the poor. Everyone comes on the same footing when they come before God. You're coming to my house. Um, I don't want to be irrever irreverent here, but maybe God says, I don't give a flip how much money you have. You can't give more. doesn't matter how much you've got with you. You just keep your money. I do not need it. You may give a half shekel, and that's all you may give. And the poor people, I don't care how poor you are, I did give you some resources, and I expect a half shekel out of you. Everyone, when they come to God, is on the exact same level. The rich do not get treated better, and the poor do not get treated differently. Everyone is the same. I think we do some per capita giving today even. Uh, usually if you think about the way schools are run, um, do they have a pay scale that's, or a tuition scale that's dependent on how much you make? No, there's a tuition and every student or every family pays the same amount. Now maybe you come along behind with a scholarship program to help out the ones that can't afford, but the actual cost is figured on a per capita basis. And the poor family, if the tuition is $1,000 a student, they are expected to pay $3,000 if they have three students, just like the very wealthy person 
is expected to pay $3,000 if they have three students. Why do we do that at schools? Well, maybe it's a subtle reminder to everyone, the teacher, that everyone paid the same to be at this school. The rich people um, pay the same as the poor people. The rich children do not get any more attention or um, share of the teacher's time than the poor children. Everyone pays the same to attend and everyone gets treated the same. Per capita giving. Another way is proportional giving. This is um, very clearly laid out in the Old Testament that God required a tithe of his people. Actually, when you study in the Old Testament law, there were three tithes that were required. Not one tithe, they paid three separate tithes. It is not clear whether those were cumulative tithes. You paid 10% for this, and 10% for this, and 10% for this, and ended up paying 30%. Or if um, you paid 10%, and then you paid 10% of what was left, and 10% of what was left of that, which might end up closer to being something like 26-27%. But they paid a tithe. The Hebrew word tithe is a, a word for a fractional number, one-tenth. Um, if you tithe, you cannot tithe 5% uh, of your income, and you cannot tithe 20% of your income. If you tithe, it is one-tenth. On $100, that's $10. On $1,000, that's $100. A tithe is one-tenth. Um, it shows up in the Old Testament. It was a requirement. And one thing that is important to note is that the tithe was initiated, um, the first time we see this in scripture, is with Abraham. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek who he recognized as his superior, a spiritual superior. Abraham lived about 800 years before the law was given. So is the tithe part of the law? It is discussed in the law, but there's a pretty strong evidence that the Israelite people were in a practice of tithing long before the law came around. It was introduced sometime before that the patriarchs tithe. In the New Testament, we see an emphasis on progressive giving. Progressive means that those who have more give more, and we will look at a few verses that reference that. That seems to be a New Testament ideal that if you have more, it ought to be a natural thing that you feel a greater sense of obligation than the person who has less than you do whenever there is a need to be met. What are the principles we find in New Testament giving? One principle is the idea that you should give voluntarily. Uh, the idea of a free will offering. You will um, not find in scripture that there are threats given to um, threats of punishment to people who don't give. You can even see that in Old Testament history where um, late in their history um, it was decided, it was felt to be a deplorable situation that the temple was in disrepair and the priests were leaving their work at the temple to go out and do side jobs because the people were not paying their tithes. 
and there was not enough money to keep up the temple and to pay the priest. It was deplorable. Nobody got hauled to jail. Nobody got fined. Nobody's land was confiscated. Um, there were no temporal punishments. Something you're supposed to do, but no civil punishments. Now, if you choose not to pay your taxes, maybe you feel that your real estate taxes are high in Lebanon County. Um, it just gripes you, so you decide you're not going to pay. Just not right that they charge me that much for real estate taxes. I imagine that after some period of time, you will find something out. You will find out that you're not living in that house anymore because the county took your house, sold it for back taxes, and now somebody else owns your house. There is penalty if you don't pay your taxes. What type of penalty is there if you don't give? We do find in scripture a, a warning. And the warning that's given is that if you do not give, um, particularly it says if you do not pay your tithes, you are a thief. You are robbing, and the person you are robbing is God. Now it doesn't follow on and um, outline that your head is to be chopped off, or your um, donkey is to be confiscated, or your land is to be taken away. But it says, this is what you have done. If you have not paid your tithe, you have robbed God. So there's now a problem between you and God. You are a thief. And likely, there will be some outcome to that. Don't you think? I think there would be an outcome to be um, experienced for that. There is a promise for those who give. And the promise is that God says, I will open the windows of heaven and rain down a blessing on you so much that you probably won't even be able to handle it. I don't um, necessarily believe that that is all financial. I think God does bless people who are generous, but probably the primary blessings are spiritual blessings. And those are worth much more than temporal financial blessings anyway. Um, if you want to be a person who's blessed by God, be a generous person, and if nothing else, you will enjoy spiritual blessings. The scripture says that you should give cheerfully. Um, attitudes matter. You like a cheerful person, don't you? Well, um, cheerful and generous, they seem to be first cousins to each other. And then stingy and grouchy seem to be related too. What type of person is it that you want to be? The scripture says that God loves a person who is a cheerful giver. They give, so they're committing a deed, an action, okay? They are sacrificing their money. Um, they are giving their time. They're making themselves available for God's work or to help other people. And they're not even unhappy about it. It actually made them happy that they got to help. So, you know, you can give without being happy about it. You can write very large checks and it just sort of gripes you that this need existed and I had to pitch in and now I won't be able to 
do such and such, what type of giver are you? It says that God loves the person who gave, and they actually were happy about it. It kind of made their mouth go up in a smile instead of go down into a frowny face because they got to do something that helped other people and it was something they did for God. It just made them happy. The scripture clearly says in the New Testament that you are to give anonymously. You can find this in the book of Matthew um, that there is a reward. God says, I take note of the people who try to give anonymously. Um, they will get their reward from me. Maybe no one else in this life will ever find out who did that or who gave that. They will never get told thank you by another person. They will receive no recognition here on earth, but I saw what they did and I will make sure that they get rewarded for what they did. On the contrary, the people who want to be recognized for what they do, um, they, they want people to think well of them for giving. They want to kind of give in ways that are public. God says they have all the reward they're getting. Whatever that did for them, well, I hope they enjoyed it because they're not getting anything else from me if they did it for the recognition of people. There is a little saying, um, I'm trying to see if I can cough this one up. I do my deeds in secret when no one is about, and yet it is annoying when not one word leaks out. Okay, so is that you? That, yeah, I know I ought to do everything anonymously, whether it's helping a brother in church, um, oh, the amount that I give to this charity or to my church, yet it would be nice if people kind of knew that I was as generous as I really am and that I'm really a really good person. Okay? No, the scripture value is an anonymous giving. It um, advocates systematic giving. There are several verses in scripture that are all tied back to one particular thing that happened in early church history. There was a time in the history of the early church when there was, um, you might say, a hard economic time. There was a famine. So we don't know exactly what all that entailed. Usually the word famine means there's some sort of crop failure, but it is a word that can um, be associated with other economic types of disaster. The famine was localized. It was down in the land of Judea, and you will find different places in Scripture where this incident is referred to because the church organized a relief program. In Christian churches across um, that part of the world, collections were organized. The Apostle Paul talks about these, that these different churches were raising money so that they could send it down to their brethren in Judea who were experiencing this famine and in economic distress. One of the encouragements that was given to the church at Corinth is that this collection is going to be coming up uh, I don't know if they set a specific day or it was going to happen when somebody was coming through to pick up the money, but they announced it in advance. 
we're going to be taking up a collection and Paul's admonition was don't wait until the collection to decide what you're going to give. On the first day of every week, you evaluate your situation. Get your wallet out. First day of every week. And whatever you decide you're going to put in the collection that we're going to be taking up after a while here, you set it aside so it's not in your wallet anymore and doesn't get spent up. You set it aside every week so that when the collection comes, it's all there. God is a very smart person. He knows how you are. He knows that for some of you, money tends to leak away if it's available. Um, you meant really well. You really intended to do something. But you bought um, coffee one day, and the next day you bought this, and the other day you ordered something on Amazon. He knows what you people are like. So he says, for those of you, or he said it to everybody, you set it aside systematically because we've got a collection coming up and if you do what you normally do, you won't have the right amount when it comes time to take up the collection. So your giving should be systematic. You should have some sort of plan to your giving and I think you can understand when's the best time to decide what you're gonna give. As soon as you get money, as soon as you get your paycheck, that's the best time to decide how much of that goes into giving. You can train little children very easily. Old people are very hard to train. Children are very easy to train. If you have small children, I recommend that you give them some money. I don't like the idea of allowance where children are, you know, they kind of start feeling like mom and dad owe me money. Hey mom, pay up, it's time for my allowance. We never had allowance in our family when we raised our children, but we decided early on that we were going to give the children some money on a weekly basis. It was very made very clear to them, this is not pay. You do not get paid to feed the dog, to clean your room, to sweep the living room, or to take out the trash. You're part of this family, and if you're in this family, you are going to work just like everybody else works, and you get paid nothing for being part of this family. But because we want you to learn how to handle money, we are going to, of our own free will, give you a dollar a week. We started as soon as they could basically sort the money into piles, and one of the lessons that went with that is when you receive money, you always give you always give at least 10%. So when they got their dollar, we always gave their dollar in dimes. Even a child who hasn't been to school yet, in very short order will learn to put their dimes in a row and to pick one of them up and to put it in an envelope or a piggy bank that's their giving money. And when you train a child to do that for about the first five years that they can pick up a dime, it is hard for them to quit when they're 18, 28, or 74 years old because you have trained them to do something. Um, the rest of our little training plan there was that 
One, the first one, you had to pick up and you put it where you put your church money, your giving money. The next three dimes you picked up and they went in your little savings account thing. And you couldn't spend it for anything even if you died. You know, it was for future. It was for your car someday or your house someday when you get big. The other six dimes went in your spending and you could spend them with mom's permission um, for at least the first couple years and I'm getting off track here. But we taught the children you give systematically. When do you give? As soon as the money comes in your possession, you spread that money out, 10%, one-tenth. Okay, you can do that with your paycheck. Um, you can do that every time you receive money as well. Biblical principle, give proportionally. God says, I don't care what you don't have. You know, how much money you have isn't irre is irrelevant to me. What I'm after is a person who has readiness of mind. You want to give. It doesn't matter how much you have, whether you have a little or you have a lot. It's important to me that you are ready to give. Um, I'm not going to judge you on what you didn't have to give. Um, I suspect there's probably somebody in this room that has never been able to give $1,000 at a time. You never wrote a $1,000 check to your church or to any charity yet in your life. And the reason you haven't is because you've never had that kind of money to give at one time. God does not care that you've never done it because you never had it to give. He is perfectly happy if you gave what you did have to give. That is what is, is of concern to him. The scripture says to give purposefully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart. That word purposes means decide. Giving isn't something that you do this way. You're sitting in church and kind of paying attention and all of a sudden you realize they're taking up the collection and you quick reach back here and here comes the offering plate. It's already heading down your aisle. You hardly even have time to look and you just reach in and grab something and you put it in before it gets to you, before it gets past you. No, um, there should be more decisions about that. How much do you plan to give? I think if you're um, maybe a youth age person, um, you should make a decision. Okay, I, I kind of know what I make about, or what I can expect to make in a week or in a month, and I have an idea what my expenses are, I understand that there's an emphasis in the Bible on giving. There is good teaching on tithing, giving at least 10% to the Lord. How much am I going to give? Am I going to give 10%? Could I really at my age afford to give 15% since I don't have children to support? Maybe at my age I could even afford to give 20% because I don't have a family to support and I don't have to pay the mortgage and dad pays the electricity. Um, so maybe at my age, I can decide I'm going to give more than I might be able to give later in my life. I think as a married couple, um, your giving should be something that you decided. 
you know, you look at your um, checkbook, maybe you can do this about December, January. After all, you know, we weren't diligent about this. We just kind of gave as we gave. But end of December, we're going to go back in the checkbook and we're going to figure out how much we actually did give. Add it all up, get a calculator out, try to remember all the times we gave cash. Okay, we're going to arrive at a dollar amount. This is how much we gave last year, our family. Was that good enough? And often I think you'll look at it, you know, when you see the actual number and you'll say, you know what, that doesn't feel like that was good enough. This is about how much we gave last year. Let's decide how much we're gonna give next year. And maybe last year when we added it all up, it only came to $848. You know what? We can give $1,500. We really could, couldn't we? Or we could make that our goal for this next year. We're gonna decide to do it. And decide on an amount or a percentage. Um, we didn't tithe before, we never have, we're going to decide we're going to start tithing and we're going to do it. And that means we're going to have to, to make it work, we're going to have to do it out of every paycheck. You can make decisions about this. The scripture says you give as you decide in your heart and then you follow through and you do what you decided. You make lots of decisions, I think you're capable of making that decision too. How much are we going to give? Give responsibly. Uh, when they took up this collection, it says that they sent it to the brethren down in Judea by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. They would not have had to wait that long. Probably every day of the week there were travelers and merchants and sea captains heading down that way. They could have just went down to the port in the city of Corinth and looked around and, anybody going to Jerusalem? Yeah, I'm heading that way. Here, please take this money and make sure it gets to so-and-so. No, they gave the money to people they knew and trusted, and then the money got where it was supposed to go. Who should you give to? I think you should give to people you know and trust. In our churches, we have deacons, and we have church treasurers. We have trustees who are appointed over things. We have mission boards, people who are voted in to oversee certain types of charitable spending. Well, who do you put in positions like that? The local scoundrels? No. You put in people who you know and you trust. When you do giving outside of the church, what types of organizations should you give to? Um, there are lots of organizations that have good sounding names, do you just give because you saw a little advertisement in the paper or in a magazine and there was a little skinny looking child with an empty bucket, you know, and a pitiful look on their face? Oh, we ought to send 30 bucks there. Well, maybe you should and maybe you shouldn't. Who are those people and what don't they do? In my work at Foundation, I worked primarily with people who are using the gift fund program and I got a call one day to, to see a person, um, doesn't actually live very far from here. Uh, uh, it was a, I can say it was a Weaverland person. That's nothing against Weaverland or for Weaverland, just it happened to be a Weaverland conference person. And it was a, a older couple 
And they weren't clients of the foundation, but he had um, met me somewhere. I didn't remember him. And he said, I would like you to stop by my house. Um, you know, we do some giving and we try to keep it quiet, but um, we heard that we should be careful about where we give. So I'd like you to come and look over the list of the places we give money to and help us figure out if we should be supporting all of these. Um, and that's part of what we do at Foundation. So I sat down, very nice family. Um, elderly man, woman, they are retired, and um, they were generous people. They were supporting their church. They were faithfully supporting a list of charities about this long. Some of it was 100 bucks a month, some of it was 50 bucks a month. And one of those charities caught my attention. And I, um, several of them I knew, you know, they were kind of like household names. Some I was a little bit acquainted with. And one I saw and I said, um, this charity right here, how did you, how did it happen that you got connected with this charity? And they said, well, we saw an advertisement in a newspaper um, or a, a magazine, I don't remember which one it was. And it looked like a good cause, um, but do you know what they do? Well, we know some of the things they do. They do this and they do this. Okay, do you mind if I do a little checking in for you? No, that's what we want you to do. Called him back. Um, no, actually, I came back. I was sitting at his kitchen table. The, the wife was not there. The little old man was. And I said, um, I need to tell you about this charity. Um, how long have you been sending them money? Well, we've been sending, it was 17 years they've been sending money. They spent, that charity spends 17% of its budget supporting abortion services. This poor little old Weaverland man cried. For, for all these years, he had, no, I, had, I conflated my numbers. They'd been doing it for 17 years, and it was, I think it was 12% of the budget went to fund abortion services. 12 cents on the dollar he had given them for 17 years had been funding abortions. He had no idea. He was heartbroken. They never, this organization never advertises that they support abortion services. Never. You will not find an advertisement that tells you that they fund abortions in third world countries. You need to know where your money goes. We have good charities in conservative Anabaptist circles. I think, I think your church is the first place you ought to give. If you don't know your church and how it's spending your money, that's probably your fault, isn't it? You have good opportunity to be well acquainted with how your local congregation is spending its resources. If you feel good about going to church here, then you ought to feel good about supporting all the things that your church is spending money on. Um, you are part of um, Keystone, right? Keystone has a mission organization, Olive Branch. You can probably feel pretty good about supporting that because you ought to be pretty well informed about what that mission organization does. There are other mission organizations. Lancaster County is full of them. There are some up here in Lebanon County that do very good work. Um, they are run by people who have similar faith and practice to you, to you. You have reasons to trust these people. That is a place you should give.
I think you can give beyond that too. You can give to parachurch organizations. You can give to general Christian organizations, like maybe a Bible-sending organization that's sending Bibles to a foreign country. But do know who you are giving to and be informed about how they are spending the money that you give them. Give responsibly. Give sacrificially. Of course, Jesus is our example. He gave everything, and if we're modeling our life after Jesus, we will want to be people who give until it actually costs us something. We don't just give the fat, the excess that we have. We give, and then we're actually willing to sacrifice something of our own that we would have liked to have had so that we can give generously. The second great example we have in the New Testament is that poor widow. And that is, to me, um, I think it's actually one of my favorite little stories in the New Testament. There was a day when Jesus was at the, the temple with his disciples, and from the description, he was evidently in the courtyard of the temple. And in the courtyard of the temple, um, Josephus actually speaks about this as well, there was a big box they had placed, a wooden box, and this box, like a big chest, we would say like a cedar chest or a hope chest, that type of a box, there was a hole in the top, and as you came in, if you had some extra money that you wanted to donate, you could put it in that box, and then the priest would use it to help with the upkeep of the temple and things related to the service of God. Jesus was sitting there, and people were coming through, and they were putting their money in. Some people were putting in a lot, and some people were putting in less. And Jesus, um, in my mind, and by the way I picture this, he nudges his disciples, and he says, Did you see that? Did you see what that little widow just put in? Well, no, they probably didn't. Um, Jesus is not me. So if it was at our church on Sunday morning and they're passing the collection around, it would probably be, would we consider it rude if it was passing along the row and it came to him and he put a check in and when it came to me next, I pulled his check out to see how much it was. And then I said, hey, do you know what he gave? And mentioned it to somebody else and said the amount. We would not consider that appropriate, but who owned this money? Whose house was it? He was in his own house, and he owns all the money, right? And he said she gave two mites. Um, a mite was their smallest denomination coin. It is smaller than our penny. It's about one-third the size of a penny. She gave two of those. And probably you would have had to have pretty good glasses to see them as they went in. Jesus was watching. He was watching close enough that he knew what she gave, and then he commented it on to other people. He commended that little old woman, and he said that she gave everything she had. Jesus has pretty good eyesight. Not only does he see what you gave, Jesus can see how much was left in your pocket and in your checkbook after you gave. He knew that she gave everything she had. 
Um, she did not lose her reward. What do you imagine happened to her after she gave the last little bit she had? She went home and starved to death probably, right? Or do you think the God who saw what she gave and knew that she gave everything she had, do you think he took care of her? I would like to think that he took care of her. Actually, I believe that he took care of her in one way or another. But she gave sacrificially. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gave enough that it actually hurt you? You didn't, you were not quite sure how you were going to pull it off. But you felt compelled to give and you gave. We don't know probably a whole lot about sacrificial giving because we are the rich people. And when we give, we have enough left over that the outcome of what we wanted to go do on Friday night is not in doubt. We will still be able to go do what we wanted to do on Friday night, whether it's go somewhere special or go out to eat, because we don't give sacrificially. The scripture encourages, blesses sacrificial giving. How can you get to that point? Well, the first step would be to give yourself. If you actually give yourself to God, you give up your life to God, he gets all of your money in the package deal, doesn't he? I think that's what that couple had to do in that story I told you the other night about the ones that gave away their um, down payment fund. They were saving up for their house. They had to get to the place where they just kind of gave themselves up. If God is clearly tapping me and saying, I want this little pile of money you have, if I give myself up, I'm giving up my future, I'm giving up my plans, I'm giving up my dreams and my goals, then God will get whatever amount of money he wants out of you. And probably the amount does not matter to God so much as the fact that he gets you to the point that you're willing to give yourself. And once you're willing to give yourself, then the rest just naturally falls into line. What should you not give to? There are some things you should not give to. Do not give to telemarketers. Um, telemarketers call. For a long time, it seemed like we weren't getting many calls. It had kind of um, slacked off, and I don't know if it's an uptick in the industry. Anymore, about every third call that comes to our house is a telemarketer. Um, it's annoying. It's aggravating, but it's also foolish to give to a telemarketer. Telemarketers are people who collect money for a living. It is their job. They are not calling from the place that they're telling you. They're calling for that place. They are being paid on a contract to collect money. In two-thirds of um, telemarketing operations, the telemarketer collects at least 50% of the donation from making the phone call. So if it is a good cause, it is something you would have wanted to support, send a check directly to them. In our day and age, you can Google it 
and find out all kinds of information about the charity, and you can get their address and send a check to them, and they get what percent of it if you send it directly to them? They get 100% of it. If you send it through the telemarketer in, what did I say, is it two-thirds of the statistic? Two-thirds of the cases, they're going to skim at least 50% off. One little sweet thing about it is, according to federal law, if a telemarketer solicits you and you ask them what percent they keep, by law they are required to tell you. They have to tell you the percentage they keep. The highest percentage I have heard since I, since I learned that is 98%. Two cents on the dollar was going to the charity, 98% was going to the telemarketer. So of course I enjoyed having a little conversation with him until he hung up on me. So when you get telemarketers to hang up on you, um, you really didn't accomplish anything, but you still kind of, yes, you had, <laughs> this was a good day. Um, you accomplished something. Do not give to telemarketers. It is not a wise way to use your resources. Never send money to foreign bank accounts. Um, that is profoundly unwise. Any entity that is worthy of your support will have a church or charity that's U.S.-based that will handle the funds. Be careful about mail advertising. You know, there are lots of pictures of skinny kids with empty buckets and sad faces. Um, do not give on emotional appeal. Give as a rational decision. Do your homework. If you want to give to starving children, give through a reputable organization that you know the type of people who are running this and you understand that the money will be used well. Disasters create needs, but every disaster has a long line of swindlers following it, eager to empty your good intentions. What should you give to? You should give to your local brotherhood needs. The scripture says that when you have opportunity, do good to everyone. Don't pass up any chance you get to do good, but especially, to the household of faith. You help all kinds of people, but you are especially responsible to help other Christians. And I think you are especially responsible to help people that you go to church with. Your first obligation is to meet needs right here. And then I think there's enough money in Lebanon County that you can handle that and then meet needs outside of here too. But you have a special obligation to the people with whom you choose to go to church. Brotherhood is a strong point in our church circles, um, but do you realize that brotherhood and accountability go together? When accountability drops away, brotherhood is the casualty. It is easy to um, Feel the call to give to people who will take your advice. People who will submit their lives to your counsel. But if a person is independent-minded and they intend to live their life as they please to live their life, they are going to suffer on the brotherhood side. 
they are going to make it hard for people to help them when they fall into need. Put those two things together. There are a lot of people that look into our type of churches from the outside and they love the way that these people help each other out, that they look out for each other, that they bail each other out and support each other. But then when they realize that that comes with some accountability to each other, it's not nearly as attractive to them. You should do your part help in crisis situations. There are legitimate needs. Christians should be the first type of people who are forward in responding to needs. And this is something we hear from, um, we work with three conservative Anabaptist organizations that are working in the Middle East, particularly one of the consistent responses they get from Muslim people who are in hardship is that this is really profound to them that they are suffering, they have a handicapped child, they are refugees, and their own Muslim people are not helping them. The help is coming from the Christians. And that is causing them to think in their hardship and their despair and in the bad things that they're suffering at the hands of other Muslims. It's the Christians who are helping our children. It's the Christians who are supplying the food. That is an effective witness. Take those opportunities. The scripture is very strong, Old Testament and New Testament, that widows are to be supported. Um, if any man have widows, he is to relieve them. There's an order of responsibility here. The family first. And then if it's something more than the family can handle, then the church needs to be quick to step up and to take care of widows. The scripture is also clear that church leaders are to be supported. And this is something I can um, speak a little clearer than your own ministry. I'll bet it's unlikely any of your preachers here have ever preached on 1 Corinthians 9.14. But it's part of scripture. What does it say? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Ministers should be supported. We do not believe in salaried ministers. We don't put our preachers on payrolls, and I think there are good reasons for that. But not having a salaried minister is no excuse whatsoever for not having supported ministry. As after serving as a minister for myself for many years, um, if you are not ordained, I can say with a high level of confidence, you have no idea how much time your ministers spend on the church work. Whether that's preaching, whether that's doing little counseling on the side, whether that's fixing little situations that you never find out about, and it takes time out of their day, it takes them away from their jobs. It takes them away from their families. And they don't ask for anything. They wouldn't want to ask for anything. They just miss a little more work this week again. Um, you have free time in the evenings and on Saturdays, and they have to study. Um, do you ever think about it? 
the sacrifices that your ministry team makes for your good, perhaps you should support them. There are lots of ways you can support your ministry team. You can support them um, with simple words of verbal encouragement. Um, do you realize that when a minister's done preaching, usually the devil comes along and tells him that was a terrible sermon. That was no good. You really blew it. You said something stupid again. And maybe they did. No one is perfect. Um, everyone, they said something a little too strong, or the verse they used in, in retrospect, it really didn't fit the point they were trying to make the best. But they could use your encouragement. If you have a minister that preached a good sermon, you tell them I appreciated that, or I needed that. That was helpful to me. And it's even helpful if you can be specific. This is the thing that you said that meant something to me. It might have been the very thing that he almost didn't say. He was a little bit afraid to say that. He worked up his courage. He said it anyway. He quoted that verse. And here, the whole sermon was meant for you. Everybody else at church was irrelevant that day. God had planned out that whole sermon and burdened that man, I want you to say this, and it was because of you. You were the person that was supposed to hear it. And if you know that you were the person that that was supposed to be for, maybe it would do a lot for your minister if you would say, hey, you said this one little thing, that was 100% me. You were talking about, I appreciate it. I've got something to work on. Pray for me. I'm going to be thinking about that this week. Um, or I'd like to hear more about that. That is good. It can go beyond that. You can um, give um, services to your minister. Your minister burns wood. Um, just say, hey, I want to know when you're cutting firewood. Because I'm going to come help you. Um, or if um, you know he's off preaching for a week, maybe he got invited to do an assignment somewhere, um, and you know he's leaving, coming up and saying, hey, I know you're going to be gone in two weeks. Um, don't worry about mowing your grass. I am coming over, and I'll mow your grass. I'll either use your mower or I'll bring mine, but you're going to be gone. Don't even worry about the grass. I'm mowing your grass in two weeks, the week that you are gone on assignment. And you can also give small gifts. These gifts do um, mean something to your ministers. I can well remember the most meaningful gift I ever received as a minister. In our little mailbox at church, uh, one time I found a little index card. And this index card was from a little boy about this big, and his name was Trevor. And he had two quarters taped on there. And he said um, something like, I like the stories you tell, and here is money to buy a Pepsi. Because I like Pepsis. And he knew that I like Pepsis. Well, his 50 cents couldn't buy me a Pepsi because Pepsis are more than 50 cents anymore. But I enjoyed that Pepsi that I bought with his 50 cents and a few more of mine probably more than any Pepsi I ever drank before. Because a little guy told me he liked the stories I told and he listens in church. Okay, you can do things like that to support your ministers. You ought to, I spent a little bit of time on that because they can't stand up here and preach on this verse. So somebody who doesn't live here has to come and tell you 
you need to do a little better job of supporting your local ministers. The scripture outlines an order of support. You are to take care of yourself. No one else is responsible to pay your way unless you're uh, you know, a dependent person. Um, but by and large, you should be paying your way in life. You should be working and you should be supplying for your own needs to the extent you are able to do that. You should take care of your own family and that runs uphill and downhill. Um, you take care of your own children and supply for them as everything you're capable of doing. And then as your parents get a little bit older, who should be taking care of mom and dad? You should be taking care of mom and dad. I do not think it is morally wrong for older people to go to a nursing home if they need that type of care, but that is the exceptional case and should not be the rule. Parents should be cared for by their older children. They took care of you when they were little, they changed you, and if necessary, you change them when they get older and you owe it to them. They invested in you, you be willing within your ability to invest in them. If it's more than a family can handle, and some situations are, I was talking with someone about meeting a need in a family. They have three children in wheelchairs. You think they've got a lot of extra work around their place? Do you think they need a little extra support? Yes. Is it more than the mom and dad can handle? Yes. Their church people need to be stepping up to the plate, sending somebody in to help, um, sending a little bit of money over because dad's staying home from work because mom can't quite handle three wheelchair children all day long by herself. Yes, the church ought to be helping when it's more than a family can do. Um, I do not think it is morally wrong to use a government program um, if you're paying taxes, but you cannot find that in the scripture where the scripture says apply to the government for assistance. Um, I think the model that we can see in scripture is you do it yourself, if you're able. When you're not able, your family is responsible around you. And then when the family isn't able, you ought to be in a church that ought to do that for you to the extent they are capable of doing it. In conclusion, um, I think giving is an investment you make in heaven. Um, God sees what people give. God appreciates people who are cheerful givers. I do not promise you will be rewarded in this lifetime. But God being the type of person he is, I do not think you will lose your reward. We're going to introduce this topic now, and we're just going to do the definitions. Um, I'm a simple person, so I try to keep my definitions as simple as possible. What is debt? Debt is money that you borrowed. What is interest? Interest is the rent you pay to use someone else's money. Rent is easy to understand. If you live in somebody else's house, generally you need to pay them for the right to use their house. If you need a skid loader for something and you don't own one, and you go to one of these places in town that have all kinds of equipment, you can use their skid loader. You just need to pay them something so much a day or so much an hour 
to use their skid loader. We call it rent. When you use someone else's money to do something you want to do, you're paying them rent. We call it interest. What is an asset? An asset is something that is of tangible and lasting value. Both of those words are important, tangible and lasting. We're going to talk about assets a little later um, tomorrow night, but an asset is a real thing. It's not um, a nebulous thing that you can't really grasp. If it's an asset, you ought to be able to touch it. It's hard. It is something that is um, transferable. There's a word I don't have in there, but that's a word um, that really should have been in there. If it's an asset, you can take it and give it to another person. So a farm is an asset, right? It's a real thing. You can get down and feel the ground. You can pick it up and let the dirt run through your fingers. A barn or a shop is a real thing. Um, it's a shelter and you can feel it and it's got windows and doors to keep the cold out and maybe it's even got furnishings that are useful in it. A cow is an asset. Um, you can butcher it and eat it. You can sell meat. You can sell milk and get almost nothing for it, but you can try to sell milk. Okay, but it is an asset. Tools are assets. It has lasting value. That means that it was worth something yesterday, it's worth something today, and most likely it's going to be worth something tomorrow. How many of you live in a house? All of you. Um, how many of those houses were worth something last year? If they existed. Maybe you have a brand new house, but if it existed, was it worth something last year? Yes. Is it worth something today? Yes. Is it going to be worth something next year if it's still there? Yes. The value is lasting. Oh, let's finish. Nope, we're going to stop right there. We're out of time. Uh, we'll pick up right there tomorrow night. Hope you have a good evening.